You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-host, Aaron Lammer. Evan Ratliff is uh, still in his undisclosed reporting location, doing actual work. I can, I, I can confirm that he's, he's still alive, though. This, yeah. This is not all an elaborate weekend at Bernie's style news. <laughs> no one would even know. We could just pretend Evan's yeah. here because no one could tell He'll us apart anyway. Real soon, guys. <laughs> yeah. I'm Evan Ratliff. Uh, Aaron. This week on the show, I literally, I legitimately don't know who's on the show this week. Uh, it's our old friend Michelle Dean. Oh, hey, she has a new book out, correct? She does. It's called Sharp: The Women Who Made an Art of Having an Opinion. It is uh, a look at ten different critics from different eras in journalism. Uh, I'm going to read you the names because okay. I think that's important for people to know. Are you ready? Shoot: Dorothy Parker, Rebecca West, Hannah Arendt. Uh, Mary McCarthy, Susan Sontag, Pauline Kael, Joan Didion, Nora Ephron, Renata Adler, Longform Podcast guest, and Janet Malcolm, definitely not a Longform Podcast guest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's those 10 writers, and it is both a look at their own work and how their work intersected. Michelle has been working on this book for years and years and years. She was working on it while she was the managing editor of longform.org. Uh, I spent a lot of time talking to Michelle on Slack yeah. for like eight months in 2015. Also a very talented true crime writer. Yes. Uh, she wrote perhaps the most read story, uh, like feature story ever on BuzzFeed. It was about uh, a young woman named Gypsy Rose. And uh, we talk about that story at some length. It was a uh, best of the year pick, the year that it came out on long form. It's, a, uh, it's incredible. Story. I, have, I have one question for you about this. Uh, do you think Michelle Dean can help us get Janet Malcolm on the show? Uh, not only, not only do I think she can't, but I, I really laid it on pretty thick. In the oh, you okay? Yeah, I was trying to get her. Uh, if there's one thing I, I, I can uh, count on you to do, it's to make it awkward <laughs> when you're trying to book someone who's uh, clearly <laughs> voiced a preference for not coming on the it's, show. It's, it's willing to push it. Um, um, if you're willing to push it, why not push it with email? That is to say, an email newsletter from the good people at Mailchimp. Uh, hey, I was actually uh, I was just looking on Mailchimp. They've got the they you can put up a whole one page website uh, with uh, Mailchimp nowadays. You and I struggled for years to figure out the landing page thing. It was always this massive pain in the ass. I, I will say that the the uh, putting up a one page website is actually the secret sauce that can glue the internet together and save you days and days of work installing a whole WordPress fandango. So uh, check that out. Thanks to Mailchimp. Uh, and here is Max with Michelle D. Michelle. Hi, Max. Hi. Uh, you're on the podcast. This is great. I know. I know. At last. At last. At long last. <laughs> um, I'm so excited you're here. I haven't seen you in a long time. I know. I know. Well, I moved away, so that didn't help. That did not help. No, no. no. But you and I used to talk all, every day. Yeah, we did. We did. I was working on longform.org. The you worked on longform.org and you and I talked about stories all I know. the time. When was it? Uh I guess it would be 2015. 
because I, I was just starting Gypsy when. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You were one of the first people I told about that story. I know. I know. <laughs> and uh, I, if I am uh, not mistaken, I responded with great enthusiasm. You did. You did. You said the one thing about the story is funny. It's kind of like hard to grok. I remember you saying that, right? Like, um, because it's true. Like once you start to get into it, it gets, you start peeling away the layers of the onion and they just don't end. But yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that story. Yeah, yeah, sure. And we're going to talk about your book, which is called Sharp, which I also feel like I heard about early. You did. You did. You were out interviewing people when you were also working on long form and telling me about that a little bit. Yep. We'll talk about that. But here's uh, that I also realized as I was thinking about talking to you this morning that there are parts of like the Michelle saga <laughs> that I'm not actually super familiar with. <laughs> and so I'd like to start there. I think... We've had a couple of people maybe on the show over the years who had a law degree somewhere. I don't actually think we've had any people who like practiced law. Yes. Well, I guess I've just broken your streak. You broke the streak. I broke the streak. Can you walk me through a little bit like how you became a lawyer and then how you unbecame a lawyer? Well, I followed a boy to law school, which is pretty off-brand for me. Um, but uh, <laughs> in my early 20s, I was not a very thinking sort of person. And um, yeah, I had this boyfriend, and he wanted to go to law school. And I was like, well, great. I'll just go to law school, too. I don't really have any other plans. And then we both applied, and I got in, and he got waitlisted. And I, I don't know. The, <laughs> Zing. The, yes. Um, the relationship gradually fell apart over the course of a year after that. But um, by then, I was in law school. Just by because of his just like crumbling ego? Well, I mean, I don't want to be too hard on him right like um but I think it fell apart for a number of different reasons but certainly I don't think that that was like a great way to start off right like um uh so we we broke up in the way that that university slash postgrad couples do and I was still in law school and I had a first year that where I did like decently enough that I ended up yeah, with this New York law firm job that I had never planned to have. Um, I was a leftist in undergrad um, and even part of sort of a leftist cabal that had run for student council. So it was very off-brand to just go off to, again, a big corporate law firm that I won't name, um, but it's pretty easy to find out online which one I worked for. And yeah, I mean, I took the job because I'd never been to New York before. The first time I came to New York was for the job interview. And then I like New York. And I was like, well, this is the way to go there. And then I, I ended up being at the law firm for five years. What were you doing? What kind of work were you doing? I wanted to be an IP lawyer, actually, like trademark and copyright, because I was always interested in the arts and stuff like that. But you can't really make your billings on that. So I did a lot of corporate litigation. So I worked on Enron and the Chrysler bankruptcy and a whole bunch of different things. It was a, mostly a good experience. I mean, you know, I obviously left the law and to a certain extent was bored by the confines of modern practice. But I had like a pretty good mentor at the job and he made sure I got some interesting work while I was there. And yeah, it was OK. But I was bored enough that I started to sort of do some theater on, on the side. And then <laughs> I wish people could see you roll your eyes the way you just rolled your eyes. <laughs> I know. Well, because I was a very terrible theater director, but I enjoyed it. I did like a lot of off, off, off off Broadway. <laughs> and I met a lot of interesting people that way, actually, but um, that I wouldn't have known otherwise working so at a big corporate law You were like firm. a corporate lawyer by day yeah. and uh, off, 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 off Broadway yeah. director by night? Yeah, because basically that's where I spent all my corporate law money was on rehearsal space, frankly, <laughs> um, for these like various little plays that I did. Um, and some of them were better than others, but it gradually like was pulling me away from focusing on law as a career or thinking about really doing it. And then I sort of lasted past the financial crisis and then finally got laid off with a very generous severance package and then was like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And by then I had met like a bunch of writers through like various channels just because I was interested in writing. I read a lot of blogs. I commented a lot on this blog people used to read called Jezebel. And so I got to know a lot of people in the comment. The comment section of Jezebel circa 2008 was super lit. Um, there are definitely like a lot of people in media now who come from there. I won't out them on this podcast, but certainly some people that I met at like meetups in 2008 now have very prominent jobs in the media. And so anyway, because of that, I started to get to know more writers and editors and I started to do some blogging and then and I had a Tumblr and eventually probably the big linchpin. Well, first I was solicited. Anne Friedman was my first like real editor and she had found me. I don't know where she found me in the blogging world somewhere. Is this like feministing era? This is American Prospect when yeah. she was there. And I wrote something for her. And then about a year later, um, that's how long it took me to sort of develop the confidence to write more. Um, 
John Stewart and Jezebel got into a thing, which was about Irene Carmon had written something about the composition of the writer's staff and the sort of culture at The Daily Show, which was pretty bro-y at that time. This seems like it still probably is. And um, John Stewart did like a show where he was like really upset about it. Like he said something like Jezebel says I'm a sexist pig on air. And you could see evidently in the way he delivered it, it was a joke, but it was not a joke. Right. Like it was both. His feelings were hurt. Irene hurt his feelings. And so it turned into a thing. And then I, I said something about it on Tumblr. And one of my followers happened to be this guy named Corey Sika. And I remember Corey liked the post or something and, and said something to me about it. And then I said, I could write it longer for this website that you have that's called The All <laughs> that was new at that time. And that was how I got involved with The All. That was like the whole story. That was basically the whole story of you how Michelle told... got through. Yeah. yeah, you told the whole thing. I have some questions about it, though. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I'd like to go back in time yeah, for a second. Yeah, yeah. Here's some questions I have. One thing that I'm interested in is that pull between corporate law and then this like stuff you're doing at night. And I'm interested in how people make those life choices. And I wonder how, if you can just go back there for a second, like how you got the confidence, desperation, whatever (laughs) it was, like how do you make that shift? Once you've got the cushy job, kind of what I'm saying is like, you know, you went to law school to, to, follow some guy who wasn't as smart as you but um, <laughs> I think he was but yeah okay <laughs> but I have a bunch of friends who took the highest paying job they could get out of school they had debt whatever and the whole plan was like make a bunch of money and then I'll go do what I really want to do and then nobody does that yeah like everyone gets used to making a bunch of money and they never want to give that up under any circumstances and so I'm interested in how you did that okay um, well, two things. First of all, I went to law school in Canada. My tuition for my last year of law school was $6,900. So I didn't have student debt. That was way number one. But a second thing is I also didn't get married or have kids, which I think is actually like the real golden handcuffs problem for most of the people, at least that I knew in the law firm, because then you get used to sort of standard of family living. And then I think I'm also just like a pretty restless soul. Like I've had like a very idiosyncratic career trajectory. And it's obviously, yeah, restlessness. I was bored. And towards the end of my law career, I began to uh, not make any really consequential errors, but there was definitely like a carelessness all of a sudden in my work because I was kind of depressed from being so bored. And so it's really more of a desperation, right? Like the the theater I picked back up, I had done it a little bit in law school. So is this like a slow thing or a Band-Aid thing? Like, did you know for a while it was like inevitable or did you like Jerry Maguire out? It was, so I didn't quit, right? Like they laid me off. So there is that, right? Like, but I was waiting to be laid off, like for far longer than I thought I would last. And just to be clear, you were being laid off because of like the financial crash, not because you were making careless mistakes because you didn't care about it. I mean, I'm sure it didn't help, right? Like, (laughs) you know, like I do remember that one thing that, that somebody said to me was like, yeah, we thought like maybe you'd just like eventually get more interested, right? Like, um, <laughs> and it was very clear that I did not. Michelle, right? we thought you would uh, at some point give a fuck. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> something like that. And yeah, and I just never managed to do it. And so it was not the career track for me. I always found business people somewhat ridiculous. And that is a really bad um, thing when you're doing a lot of meetings with business people. <laughs> it's not so bad when you're a corporate litigator because you tend to be coming into the situation being like, oh my God, you guys have screwed this up. Like, how did you screw this up this badly? But yeah, so I knew that it was not going to be for me for a long time before. And in fact, like, you know, before I left law school, I had like, I, I used to talk about a seven year plan. Like, in seven years, I'll be a writer. I actually stuck to that. Oh, so writing was always the ambition. Yeah, but I had no confidence. <laughs> I think for a long time I thought like, okay, at some point like some switch is going to go off in my brain and I'm going to feel like I have something to say. I guess it did sort of, but it took a long time for me to like build confidence for that. And it's funny because I don't think I come across as a not confident person, but like definitely I didn't think I really like knew what I wanted to say or do. And I didn't know anybody until I moved to New York who actually made a living as a writer. Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of it. So to me, there was no obvious like entree into the profession and... I don't know. I sort of had this idea because I revered writers that they were born geniuses. And I didn't feel like I had been born a genius. <laughs> I So I was waiting for that feeling to kick in and it wasn't going to kick in. And I was getting older. And then I got really, again, involved in this commenting community. And that actually built my confidence a little bit. How old are you when that started happening? 29. 29. Yeah. 
And once you started to feel like you had something to say, what was it that you felt like you uh, wanted to say? <laughs> That's a very deep question. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of my early stuff is about feminism and is in some sense about like the right to speak or the right to say something in spite of a world that is telling you to shut up, which is actually what the Jezebel controversy was about. And a lot of like, I did a lot of pop culture feminist analysis of, which it's funny when I was doing it in 2009, 2010 and onwards, I don't think anybody really thought it was going to like explode into the kind of thing that it is now. Um, it was sort of an outlier activity at the time. And now gradually, I guess I've moved away from it a little bit. It's not that I'm, my writing isn't still feminist, but I don't do a lot of like feminist pop culture analysis anymore. Cause now everybody does it. And <laughs> there are lots of people who are better at it than me. Um, but yeah, so that was the thing that kind of like hooked me in and it was, Jezebel in a really large way like I always tell Anna Holmes I'm a writer because of her can we talk a little bit about that time on the internet yeah sure. and like early all days early all yeah it um I mean this is just like how time works mm -hmm. I guess but now we're like fully out of that era the all is so sad the all is closed it's wild it's um <laughs> it does all make me feel super old because i was like oh that's yeah. a, that just happened <laughs> that was that was very recent yes yes but uh 2009 was like um i know quite a i bit know of time i know 2009 i believe the all started in 2009 if i'm not I, I might be getting that off by a year here or there but i believe that was the year that it started and yeah at that time it was funny because it was still like the internet that was there was still the remnants of um the early usenet internet like i've been on the internet since 1994 i was like a, an early child adopter because my dad was a computer scientist so like he introduced me to free nets um <laughs> so you'd, but, you'd been commenting for a long time yes actually if you i should not say this on the podcast but i'll just say it. if you look really hard you can find like a, a review i wrote of Waterworld when i was like 14 on rec arts movie reviews online yeah it's pretty funny <laughs> We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. <laughs> um, anyway, so I've been around the internet a really long time. And yeah, it still had the spirit of like Usenet of like there's a bunch of people with a bunch of idiosyncratic interests could find each other on the internet and sort of like exist together without like all this noise from the outside world coming in. And at that time, I mean, I think people were on Facebook. I think I've been on Facebook since about 2008. I could be wrong about that year, though. But people didn't really use it for like political discussions or even discussions of anything. So people were doing that in the comments sections of different places. And what that meant is you met a lot of like really interesting sort of people from weird walks of life. And and I mean, it's funny how many writers and stuff have come out of like the all comments. And the all was so much fun in the beginning. And it was fun for a long time. Help, help people who are not uh, uh, right. as aged as you and I <laughs> to understand why it was so fun. Well, I think the all has a lot of features that are similar to the early New Yorker in the sense that it was just about like people with a weirdo sensibility, meaning Alex and Corey, and then eventually Carrie when they brought her on as managing editor, doing things that pleased them that they thought were not going to be published anywhere else. And it was mostly volunteer and unpaid, although oh, that is in the history of most publications, like the way that an interesting publication gets started is people donate their work to somebody that they care about and believe in. And that was mostly what was happening with Corey and Alex in the beginning. Um, and I wasn't even, I came into the all probably about a year into its existence, but it was so nice to have this place where people wrote all sorts of weird things there. So did I. I mean, I, I remember I wrote things about like 19th century, like memoirists on this website. And you could just find like a very weirdo, like aesthetic there that, is gone mostly from the internet now and it's very sad but the nice thing about it was it was a place where I once had like a journalism professor say to me that like the thing is like if you're young and you want to publish something there's no point in publishing it in the New Yorker first because everyone who reads it will assume that they've edited every word that you've published hmm. uh, or that they've rewritten you basically from scratch but if you publish it at the all you get to kind of sort of show off what you're doing and so it was just this really valuable place that way it's interesting that's like the flip version of the way that I also described its value for such a long time. I think it's pretty hard to get your first piece in the New Yorker, but like yeah. it's a real champagne problem if people like are like, hey, you didn't write that piece of yours that's in the New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. for so long, like I felt like the all basically like replaced what alt weeklies did for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like alt weeklies for a long time are this place where you could sort of learn how to do the work and maybe there was a small amount of money attached. Yeah. But it was like a way to get better slash get seen yeah you know yeah 
And then like those jobs just died, just like went away. Yeah. And then the, there was this period of time where when young writers would come to me and be like, what's your advice for how to do something? They're just like, try and write something for the all. It's like read by the right yeah. people, you know? And in addition to like, it's weirdo sensibility, which seems kind of gone. Yeah. I just, I don't know where that place is now. I know, because people do keep asking, like, where where would you advise me to publish now? And it's like, I don't have an answer for you. Like, it's really sad because um, for so long I told any young writer who approached me, like, just try to get into the all. Every editor in town reads it. And it's fun and you won't get paid anything necessarily. Or you might you might get these, like, random checks from ICANN has LLC. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, but everybody will read it. And, yeah, it's really sad because... I guess, like, the rumpus still exists, which, like, was more literary side, but, like, could still probably accommodate some of that stuff. But, like, the kinds of things that people were publishing at the all at the beginning, just there's nowhere to put them now. Nowhere. Yeah, but it's also, like, the rumpus is fantastic and not getting read by the people who have, like, bad exactly. budgets to hire writers. Yeah, I know. I, and I don't even know, like... Where, where they find these new writers now, I guess on Twitter, but Twitter is so much more noise and in a way is a horrible forum for young writers to try out things. Yeah. Because, you know, you're just going to get swarmed by a lot of feedback. And actually, I don't think like a lot of feedback is necessarily good for a young writer. Like a moderate amount of feedback. Yeah, a moderate amount of feedback. Focused and experienced yeah. feedback. Yes. Well, one of the great things that Dan Max said to me when I first started writing, well, we, like he he came into my life a few years in, but he he said to me like, you need to remember that your client as a writer is the editor and not like the general public. I heard you say that recently. I was so struck by that. So Dan Max is uh, DT Max. That's his byline in the New Yorker. And you were like, I can't remember, like research assistant or you basically. I helped him fact check his biography of David Foster Wallace. Got I mean, it. you know, I had written something about David Foster Wallace for the all. And the long and short of it is I ended up in touch with Dan. And he asked me if I wanted to learn more <laughs> about deep reporting, which I did at the time. I was I was actually in a program at NYU, which is a whole other kettle of fish. And, um, <laughs> and so I said, yes, I, I would like to learn more. And I ended up helping out with the fact checking of that book which was a really great way to learn how to report. Why? Because basically when you're a fact checker, the access is negotiated for you, which is often like actually I think the hurdle for like a really young reporter is like getting used to the fact that you're like cold calling people all the time. And I was able to, when I did the re-interviewing that I did for the book, like I could practice my interviewing skills a little bit and I could have... Dan would would like talk to me uh, a little bit beforehand. I know that he'll be he <laughs> um that he doesn't want me to re- to reveal all his methods, but I think I can say that much, right? Um that he definitely used it as an opportunity to guide me in my interviewing technique and I learned a lot from him about how to interview people because before that I was a little bit too um lawyerly about it. <laughs> right? What does like, that mean? <laughs> well, I could be very um aggressive mm-hmm. and mostly because I was just being a little bit direct and I was used to you know like you didn't really have that bedside manner yet no no I didn't you know know things like just be gentle I was used to asking well I was used to watching I didn't really conduct any depositions when I was a lawyer but I was used to watching depositions where typically when you ask a question the person's been instructed to answer in no more than a sentence right like so I was used to the kind of questioning that you have to do when you're interlocutor is trying not to tell you anything, which is actually not usually the case when you're interviewing people. They often have at least a version of the story that they want to tell you, and it sort of comes tumbling out. And so I had to learn like stuff like that, and I had to learn like what questions to ask first and what questions to ask later in order to make a subject feel like they could trust you a little bit with mm-hmm. the story. So just to kind of like catch up on our chronology here. Yeah. So like you're at the law firm, you're commenting on Jezebel, the blessed layoff comes. Yeah. You get in with the all crew. Yeah. You write this piece about David Foster Wallace. Yes. Uh, DT Max calls you up and is like, fact check my book. <laughs> you're doing that. At what point in that process did it start to feel like I am clearly on my way to doing this or I have done this or... Again, I'm just I'm interested yeah, in know. how you make these transitions. To, to rewind a little bit, yeah, because before Dan, so once I started writing on the all, 
for about the next year, I contributed maybe four or five pieces. And there were a couple of them that started getting me these editor emails, right, um, from people at all sorts of publications saying, like, hey, if you, like, ever have an idea that would be right for us, like, I'm the person to write to, um, and you should pitch us. That's got to be pretty exciting. Yeah, it was. And I was, at the time... I've cut out a lot. And again, I have like the the most random career trajectory. I was doing a master's degree in law at the University of Toronto. Like that was my chosen like exit ramp. And so I was sort of in Toronto and doing the not very much that one does when one is doing a graduate degree. (laughs) Um, And so I had a lot of time to write. And gradually it became clear that I was getting solicited quite a bit. And I also ended up with, like, this offer to go back to the States at NYU in a program on literary reportage. And so I ended up, like, coming back to the States doing that and writing some more. And then it was in the fall of that year that I ended up running into Dan Max. But so it really was like, yeah, it was definitely like a slow burn, right? Um, It became clear shortly before I decided to take the NYU program, which would have been March-ish of 2011 that I realized like this is going well like this writing thing like it's going somewhere and I decided to take this big leap of faith and go back to the states to a slightly overpriced program although I had some funding for it and see what happened and what proceeded to happen was like I just kept getting in deeper and deeper. (laughs) What does that look like what is getting in deeper and deeper mean? Well after I started working for Dan I realized I really loved reporting after I worked on the David Foster Wallace book so So gradually I was moving towards that, but I kept getting like all sorts of other kinds of gigs, um, you know, pop culture blogging at like a million different outlets. Yeah. And at that point, is it like you just got to say yes to anything? Yes. And I certainly like did a lot of work in the beginning or it was very prolific in the beginning that now I wouldn't do (laughs) because that was the beginning of the sort of like explosion of feminist pop culture criticism. And it was like my bread and butter for a long time. Was that hustle exciting, exhausting? It was awful. I, I mean, you know, the thing is, like, I cared a lot about the issues. But once I started to get into a situation where I was blogging like a lot, it was not from me. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of opinions, um, (laughs) (laughs) but not as many as apparently are required, right, Um, for those daily blogging gigs, right? Like, um, and I definitely did not. um, That's the old uh, Renata Adler line. Yeah, I know, right? Like, it is. uh, I definitely sympathize with her analysis of the daily critic or weekly critic or whatever. I mean, for her, it wasn't even as fast as it would have been in the blogging era. But, like, yeah, I definitely sympathize with that. I really felt, and again, like, I was trained as a lawyer. I was trained to always have an argument, right? Like, and always be able to reason from principles and on my feet. And by the end of it, by the time I I went to Gawker, I had, I just couldn't do it anymore. So and you went to Gawker, I went obviously. To Gawker. Yeah. Is where you go next. <laughs> I mean, so here's the thing: like because I came from so far outside of like the journalistic establishment, it never occurred to me that I could like get an assistant job at the New York Review of Books or something, which would have frankly been closer to my interests, right? Um, I didn't really know how anything worked, right? And all I knew was, like, blogging and the internet. And so, yeah, John Cook approached me to come work at Gawker, and I took the gig, and it was a disaster. I mean, it was not a disaster, like... I don't think like embarrassing for me or for them exactly, but I just was not suited to that place. Not because they were, I mean, I have a lot of complicated feelings about Gawker as I think nearly everyone who has ever worked there would tell you they have. However, like I just did not, I was not really a blogger. I'm not like super funny in the way that Gawker people are funny. So it just didn't really, it was not like a good fit. And it was made worse by the fact that John Cook actually quit 45 minutes into my first day. After hiring me, um, yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? What do you do when the guy who hired you just quit after forty-five minutes? Well, I'll say this much: it started me off on the wrong foot to have him quit forty-five minutes into the first day. It was just a confidence buster, and again, you're going to hear this probably over and over again. Like, I don't have the greatest self-confidence, and so this just felt like, oh God. Right. Like I have ended up in this job, which is a high visibility job, and it's not going to be the job that I thought it was when I came in the door. 
And I remember like very early in the tenure just talking to friends and being like, I don't think that I'm going to end up being here for very long. And I don't know what to do because also like freelancing was starting to collapse around that time. Right. Right. And so, yeah, so this this dragged on for like eight months. And I, I did some work there that I'm proud of. I did a piece about Harper Lee long before anybody was doing Harper Lee stuff. And I actually got Tanya Carter to speak to me briefly over email, which was something, right? Um, especially because she proceeded to not talk to anybody for months after that. But um, on the whole, I was mostly um, I was mostly just miserable. And I think because I was miserable and felt like my confidence had been busted the moment I walked through the door, I didn't do my best work either. So then I left and went back to freelancing, basically. Help me understand just for a second. So again, I'm just trying to piece together this like yeah. time before basically I, <laughs> I met you. Yeah. And like <laughs> the story up till now seems like such a crazy like uh, success story. Like it's it from the outside it seems so validating. Like you <laughs> you left the law, yeah. like found your way into this universe that you didn't know so well. Yeah. Uh, basically got by on like the merits of your work, landed at Gawker, and then and then it felt shitty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I mean, I think I think people don't. This is not going to tug at certain people's heartstrings because they feel like they were tortured by Gawker for one reason or another. And some of them have reasonable claims to that. Um, From the inside, being a Gawker was being attacked online all day, every day, right? Like, it sometimes felt like a siege mentality, right? Um, Because people were very caustic back to Gawker um, about Gawker. And... I guess if you have a thick skin to start off with, that's easy to deal with. But I think it wasn't for me. It wasn't easy, especially because I wasn't really writing traditional Gawker content, which is not to say there's anything wrong with traditional Gawker content. I've been reading Gawker forever. But I wasn't writing like, you know, like regular tabloid stuff a lot of the time. And my writing style was not very Gawkery. And so I was often feeling like I couldn't get it in front of the right audience Mm -hmm. because it was coming from Gawker. Which was both like a, a really great visibility place and oh, it's too much visibility for me. And yeah, and so I just gradually came to feel that I was like pleasing no one. Did you uh, Did you leave? I mean, we, we yeah, by mutual agreement more or less, right? Like, um, you know. It was time to go. Yeah, it was time to go. I, yeah, so I left in like October of 2014. I think it was October. And then you got to work at the amazing website longform.org That's and true. talk to me on Slack all day. Yeah, exactly. And I were, and I started doing a lot of work for The Guardian and yeah, just yeah. Kept going from there. Yeah. All right. So here's the next thing I'm interested in. Let's talk about this book for a little bit because yeah, that's sure. like where that around that time is when that idea started. I actually sold the book in 2013. So, I'm so, so, like, I'm so messed I up know, on this chronology. So, so you sold the book in 2013. Yes. Um, really? Yeah. Um, it was very early. Um, it was, in fact, so early that nobody wanted to buy it because nobody thought that books about women were particularly useful things, which is funny. Like, it was in the pre-bad feminist era. So there was no no sense of the feminist bestseller that is now around, right? Um, All right. Well, give me, give me your book pitch. So what, what was the pitch then and how closely does it hew to what just came out? It's pretty close in that the book pitch was there are these 10 women who sort of knew each other and or had their careers defined in terms of each other who all embodied like a certain kind of style, usually of pretty acidic commentary, but insightful at the same time as it was acidic. Um, And that's the quality I call sharp in the book. And the idea was that even though there have been biographies written of many of these women and pretty comprehensive and good biographies, a lot of people had not sort of strung them together in the way that I could see that they were linked together. And I wanted to write a book about the links between them. So you like this time when you were this at Gawker, was, you were all bummed out. You are you had like a book contract. I did have a book contract, but I was behind on the book contract. Actually, one of the first things I did when I got out of Gawker was I contacted Janet Malcolm for an interview. But um, <laughs> finally, yeah, I was a little bit bummed out. The book contract was not huge, right? Like you know, I think people have an idea like, well, you have a book deal, like uh, that must be your full time job. And I was one of these people who did not have like a huge book deal and needed to keep up like basically a full time schedule on top of it. Right. And so, so everybody knew that meant the book was going to be like a slow project. But yeah, so I had this book going and 
I realized like, yeah, it does sound in retrospect. And and this is sometimes the story of my life that on paper it looks like it's going great. And like my personal um, idiosyncratic experience of it is not so great. <laughs> um, although I have to say, once I got out of Gawker and I was freelancing, like things just got better and better. But um so I had this book going and I was working on it for like a really long time because I had, you know, 10 people, all of whom had substantial bodies of work that I had committed to basically read all of, plus all of the reception of them, plus anything I could find that had been written about them, plus look at like their archival files, mostly correspondence between them and other people because the book is about links between writers. And yeah, that was a project that had to be done nights and weekends. So it just dragged on for years. Yeah. I mean, so that was a, it was a four-year project. And that, there were two things I, that I was thinking about while I was reading yeah. it. One of them was, holy shit, this is so much work. <laughs> like this is, I know, I'm so stupid. Anyway. <laughs> such a high degree of difficulty. <laughs> and, and because of that, like you can just feel the amount of research that mm-hmm. went into it. It's interesting that you did it a little bit on the margins of your life because it feels like a book that took over your life. <laughs> I mean, it did. And it's it's funny. There's no first person in the book, but like it definitely feels like it was a covert autobiography um, <laughs> uh, of some of these years. And in fact, I showed the, the manuscript to one of my friends like maybe a couple of years ago. And he said... You know, I was reading it and I was thinking, like, Michelle has said stuff in here that she's saying about Dorothy Parker about her own life, right? <laughs> which I hadn't even known, right? Like, I hadn't noticed this until he observed it. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can, I mean, I, you know, you and I don't know each other super well, yeah. but I can say that that was, that was partly my experience, too. Like, yeah. <laughs> why did, why was this the book? Why was this the book? Well, you know, I think. Let me ask that a different way. Yeah. What were you trying to figure out? You're good at this. I was trying to figure out how to write and uh, how to be a person, a writing person in the world. Because it, one of the dramas that is sort of going on, especially at Gawker, was about like the visibility of it, right? Like, and having trouble with that. And so I think, obviously, although I put the book together before Gawker, it was something that was on my mind about like the kind of pushback that one gets. Because actually, like the one of the seeds of this was years and years ago, 2012, Sheila Hetty wrote this book called How Could a Person Be? And James Wood kind of panned it in The New Yorker, although I thought he just like misunderstood it. Like he thought the book was dead serious when it it's mostly like jokey. And so I just wrote like a piece for Slate, like kind of being like he did not understand the book. And the thing that happened was I got this avalanche of mail from men being like, I remember one of them was like, you know, my girlfriend thought this review was just as stupid as I think it is. And I was surprised by the pushback. I don't know if I've always just been like a goody two-shoes student or something, but like I had never received this kind of pushback from, you know, the world. And I think because of that, I started to seek out the bodies of work and histories of women who had had some kind of like conflict with the public sphere and trying to figure out how they navigated that. And I think, yeah, that's a lot of what's going on in Sharp is me trying to figure out like, how do you do this? Like, um, how do you maintain your own like personal take on things in the face of like a lot of opposition? How do you do that? I don't think this book has any one answer about it. I think what the book has is a lot of reassuring answers about how it wasn't really that easy for any of these women, right? Like, because I think that um, I definitely, and here I speak only to my own naive picture of what a writing life was like, again, from the perspective of someone who didn't know any writers. But I guess I thought that they just had some superhuman quality, right? Like, and that they were gifted with something where they had like a very thick set of armor Mm -hmm. um, about it. And I learned that that was not the case doing the research of the book. And I thought that was sort of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, um, it's kind of like how life works a little bit, you know, (laughs) like you you always figure like, well, these people obviously like uh, don't have all their shit together, but like that person over there clearly totally sorted out. Yeah. And then you like get to know them in there. Was it was that reassuring for you that even like yeah. Didion and Janet Malcolm and Hannah Arendt did not like the reception of Eichmann in Jerusalem? Like it was not a pleasant experience for her, right? Like, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is nice to see, right? Like, um, and I, I'm not really. It's funny. There's this whole debate in literary circles about like whether you should identify with people or or, or whatever, whether it's like jejun in some way, and to do that. 
but I think it's hard not to look at these like situations and compare them a little bit to your own experience. So that was the thing that was like a very essential question for me in doing the book and why the book maybe is not like the very typical literary study that I guess it could have been. But um, yeah, it's a little bit more of a Tower of Babel because of it, because there isn't one answer about it. Like, I wish there was one answer. The answer is just like, you kind of have to just like wing it. (laughs) And I'm learning that. I'm learning to be okay with the winging it. Because I think that what the problem was, was that I once believed that I would just get to a point where I would be confident enough and I would just like, I would constantly feel fine about being like in a combative position against a bunch of people. And that point never came and probably is never going to come. And I guess like the lesson to me of what went on with a lot of the women in the book is like, you have to be just comfortable with the fact that it's going to like, some days are going to be good and some days are not going to be good. Um, which is like very like self-help Buddhisty sort of like take on it, but it is like more or less what I came through with. And I, it's it's funny how simple the lesson is to say and how hard it is to learn, right? Like because it, it sounds almost like sentimental and stupid, but it's actually really hard to just like live that way. Do you feel like you're getting better at it? A little bit, not much. Sometimes, some days, I don't know, because my, my life is so strange that, <laughs> like, it seems to change every five years or so, so, like, radically. So, I don't know, like, but I'm trying to get better and go with the flow of things. Do you feel like you're, like, entering a new era now? Are you entering yes. a new five-year chunk? Yes. I don't really know what this five-year chunk looks like exactly, but it's different being a book author, and it's different being somebody who all of a sudden can do reported stories in a way that I couldn't do them before. I mean, there's a lot more resources behind my writing than there was for a really long time. In doing all this research and um, in talking to many of the the women featured in the book. I mean, I only really talked to one and a half, but yeah. Who's the half? Renata. Renata only counts as a half? I mean, yes. Why? (laughs) I'm not sure I should say this on the podcast, but like uh, she... um, I'll tell you the story. We can talk about it. But um, she actually... um, she never spoke to me. Um, what she did was I gave a presentation on the book to the New York Institute for the Humanities in 2015, and she RSVP'd for it, even though she's not, like, a member of the Institute. And she just showed up <laughs> with her friend. And, uh, and yeah, and she seemed to enjoy the presentation. But then after that, I tried to get in touch with her again because she said that she would talk to me. No. Really? I know. She talked to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite one of these ever. Yeah, I know. I know. I remember. Um, so the only person you talked to is Janet Malcolm? Yeah, because Didion is, it was not available for whatever reason. I don't know why. Like, I didn't get a reason she didn't want to speak to me. All right. Well, let's talk about interviewing Janet Malcolm. <laughs> I can only lightly in, uh, talk about this to you. Um, yeah. I mean, Janet Malcolm is a really nice person to talk to. I'm not exaggerating. She's really nice. Uh, you can only lightly talk to me about it because you like a- agreed to not talk about it in some way. No, um, I think there's a level on which uh, one doesn't want to completely um, destroy the mystique <laughs> <laughs> of one's techniques uh, or uh, of one's experience as an interviewer. But yeah, she was kind enough to talk to me for a couple hours one afternoon, and she, yeah, she was, yeah, just a very solicitous person, and it's pretty easy to see why people just say things to her. <laughs> why is that? She's very nice. And I keep saying that even though it sounds like I'm trying to say something like anodyne about her because I think people have this idea that Malcolm is difficult or or like sharp, um, uh, you know, or, or a mean person, right? And that is not my experience of her. I think, you know, it is, of course, a psychodrama to interview her for a young journalist who really admires her work, which I think is true of me, though I might not be so young. I definitely really admire her. And so it was like kind of like I was sweating kind of thing beforehand. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, but she went out of her way to like put me at ease. And it was really quite nice of her. I mean, you know, it's it's funny. I I think most people, if you've ever seen Janet speak and she doesn't do like a lot of events or anything, but like, you know, she is actually she is a very unassuming presence in many ways, Hmm. which works really well when you're a lady reporter. People say anything. Yeah. Didion used to talk about that too, but I think they're both the same way that way. 
Didion doesn't seem like someone who would have an unassuming presence. I think she maybe had more unassuming in the past, but now she is this icon by herself. Right. And so it would be harder to come to her sort of unwashed or like you would have to come with like an offering or something. But yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I do know friends who have interviewed her and who have had perfectly pleasant experiences with her. Here's part of the reason I was asking ab- mm-hmm. about that. You did all this research. You spent all these time mm-hmm. with these 10 women. Mm-hmm. And I wondered whether... Um, the book's so full of ideas and mm-hmm. the book is doing so well. I feel like you've done all these interviews <laughs> and I've, I've heard you talk about it a lot and, and um, I talk about the ideas and uh, but the thing I was kind of wondering when I was reading, it was like, um, did you end up liking them more or yeah, less? Yeah, sure. I mean, so this book is not reported, right? Um, mostly because if I had tried to report 10 lives, many, some of whom died before the end of the eighties, I would have had to like abandon the project. It would have been too huge. So I just like relied on other people's reporting and did a little bit extra myself, but not like a ton. And I didn't, you know, I really just tried to mostly rely on published texts. But it was definitely true that I came to feel emotionally attached to them, which for me has been a general problem in writing. Not, I mean, not problem. It's just, you know, if you talk to a lot of journalists, they'll talk about like, well, certain kinds of journalists will talk about objectivity. And I've always found when you're writing at length about somebody or something actually meditative about somebody, it's a lot harder to just sort of disconnect from it. And so, yeah, so I guess like I ended up liking them more, which isn't to say that I endorse everything that they said or did, but I felt like I came to understand their humanity a little bit better. And that makes you like them more in a sense. Not for everybody though, right? No, no. Like sometimes when you dig in, you you, uh, you encounter some some aspects of humanity that maybe turn you off well biographers do that sometimes although like Norman Mailer is in my book but like it's not like I'm Norman Mailer's biographer and I have to suddenly like grapple with the fact that he stabbed his wife like nobody in here stabbed their wives or husbands (laughs) I mean there was some Mary McCarthy and Edmund Wilson darkness but um by and large I wasn't dealing with people who had made I guess like there's some question about Rebecca West and her son and and who did not get along with her there's some darkness there but in general because I was grappling more with work and less with personal lives, I didn't have to yeah. like worry so much about rescuing them and also was not really interested in rescuing them. I, I don't think it would be like faithful to the tradition for me to like argue them into virtue. Well, I, yeah. it feels to me like actually you pretty rigorously throughout the book like completely resist the urge to do that. Yeah. Like there are over and over again, it feels like yeah. there's like a focus on complexities and hypocrisy and yeah. conflict and like... It seems to me, at least as a reader, it felt like that was kind of your worst case scenario. Yeah. It was like uh, sort of blind valor. Yeah. I mean, because the book is a celebration by any stretch of the imagination. But um, I guess I feel like celebration can be more complex than like, because, you know, one of the things that has sort of embarrassed me in the promotions of the book and not in anything, but I just mean in stray tweets that go by where somebody is like, Joan Didion is my shiro. And I, I just think to myself, like, Okay, like it's very well meant, and I know. But like on the other hand, like some of the sort of rah rah sismumba like um, feminism of our moment is not is to me flattening, right? Like it flattens their humanity and turns them into sheroes. When in fact, like you know, that's exactly I guess the problem that I started out doing this research project with was like I didn't I wanted to know more about them than just like this sort of flat picture of like this kick ass lady. Which, you know, they are kick-ass on some level, um, right? But I wanted to know more about, like, the costs and benefits of that and how they intersect. So there's definitely, like, a preoccupation with making sure that I got to the costs, too. It's interesting you say that thing about flattening, and and I assume on some level you're just, like, talking about Twitter and social media. (laughs) um, Yeah, you kind of have these like uh, dual lives where you've had for the last couple of years. You are yeah. you are like an active person on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are a uh, active tweeter. I am an active tweeter. How has that balance been for you to like have this daily churn flattened experience, and then like you're going so deep into these women's work, like at least in a collective way that no one's done before. Yeah. Like the deepest dives you can do. <laughs> research project so crazy that as I was reading the book I was like what the fuck is Michelle doing uh, trying to kill myself yeah and then at the same time like keeping up on that uh, on that daily churn 
So I'm definitely less of a daily churn writer, like in terms of, like I do tweet a lot, but um, I've been out of the daily churn for a little while. And, you know, I actually think like Twitter is horrible. Um, I'm, I'm definitely on the Twitter is horrible. Why can't I quit it? Like bandwagon. I know why I can't quit it. It's because I spend like 85% of my time alone, right? And I have these two kittens and they're great, but like not great conversationalists. So um, for anyone who's not following Michelle on Twitter, <laughs> you, can, you can follow and get a lot of Twitter, uh, a lot of kitten content. Yeah, there's a lot of kitten content. So, so like I don't, I need to have this like social interaction, however imperfect, like I, I don't kid myself that it's a substitute, but I need the workplace culture of it still. And that's why I'm on there. But yeah, I think overall it's the antithesis of like thinking very carefully about things. So I, and it's sad for me because like I've been saying since the beginning of this recording, like, you know, I, the internet was very crucial to me as like a writer, right? Like, and so I'm not like a Luddite who thinks we should all get offline, but I just wish it's actually, I blame Twitter and Facebook. That's who I blame. Right. I, I blame them for organizing our public conversations in a way that is maximally destructive to the actual ideal of public conversation. That was pretty like heavy, sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize. Yeah. I uh, I agree. Yeah. I also like can't quit it. And yeah. I'm with people all the time. I'm never alone. Yeah. There's one more thing we have to talk about. We cannot I cannot <laughs> let you leave without talking about this and uh and then I will let you leave, which is which is the story. <laughs> Yeah, the story. Can we talk about the story? Yeah, we can talk about the story. Can you tell people uh, the story to which I'm referring? Um, He is talking about the story of Gypsy Rose Blanchard, who was a young woman who was living in Missouri with her mother. And she was in a wheelchair, and she was had multiple diagnoses of ailments, and, and it was a very big human interest story for the local press there um, about... They, they had moved into, like, a Habitat for Humanity home and were, like, living this sort of life in charity, uh, off charity off, a lot of the time because of Gypsy's ailments. Um, and it was all, like, a very heartwarming story until one day in June 2015 when on Dee Dee, the mother's um, Facebook page, uh, a status popped up and it said, that bitch is dead. And later that day, the neighbors and the police sort of broke into the house and found Dee Dee dead in her bed and Gypsy gone. Um, and it took a couple of days for things to sort itself out, but it turned out that Gypsy met a boyfriend online and orchestrated the murder of her mother, um, helped orchestrate it anyway. And it turned out that, in fact, she wasn't really ill. Um, I mean, it's actually not clear what exactly was wrong with Gypsy, if there's anything ever wrong with Gypsy, but... Um, yeah, she certainly could walk and she could eat. She had been on a feeding tube before, but um, she was pretty much perfectly healthy. And it turned out that her mother had been forcing her for most of her life to pretend that she was the sickly child. And she was 25 years old. Yeah, 25 or 24. And she didn't really have any idea of her true age um, because her mother had lied to her about it. And anyway, yeah, I wrote a really long story about it for BuzzFeed um, in uh, 2016, and it went viral. And I think it's now up to like about 6 million views, which is more than anybody is ever going to read any piece of writing I read ever again. And uh, yeah, a lot of people read that story. And then later, well, at the same time, the documentary crew late in my reporting started working with the family, and they made this documentary called Mommy, Dead and Dearest on HBO, uh, which I'm also in. Erin Lee Carr made that documentary. She did. She's been on this podcast too. Yes. It's uh it's in like the pantheon of holy shit stories, that story. Yeah, it really is. It was funny. You are you are one of the first people I told about it because I started working on it while I was still working with you at Longform. Um and it took almost a year to do mostly because I when I initially went down there, I didn't have a lot of uh, luck with the sources. Right. And then I decided to just let it cook for a while and went back to it. And when I went back, they all decided to talk to me. That's part of what I wanted to ask about. I mean, you knew it and I were talking about it a little bit at the time, but yeah. I remember there was this panic <laughs> around the idea that someone else was going to get there. It was like you didn't even want to talk about it that much. <laughs> and I just remember having some conversations with you where just yeah. I could feel like you were like, <laughs> I I know that if I can get this, it, it's yeah, it'll gonna, be good. It'll be good. Yeah. And I didn't really know because, like, again, I had been taught to report really gently, right? Like, and so. 
you know, I'm not the kind of person who just like keeps knocking on the door until they open it because I don't want them to be annoyed with me when they speak to me. And that's not just a politeness thing. It's about like getting the kind of interview that I would like to get, which is one where they feel like they're sharing their story with me. Mostly because that's the most valuable. Even if I don't end up like telling the story in the way that they tell it themselves, it's most valuable to me to get that interview um, rather than the get off my lawn interview. So how did it turn? You know, I just stayed on it. And when I when I went back to it, I got in touch with I had been in touch with Gypsy's stepmom pretty early on. And they, at the time they were like not ready. To, I mean, you know, I, when I say pretty early on, I believe within weeks of Dee Dee's body being discovered in the house, I was in touch with them and uh, they were not ready to talk. And then when I went back to them, they decided they were ready almost a year later, um, like about 10 months later, I think. How did you know that that was the time to go back? Like, is it just feel like how did you know? I don't think that I knew that they were going to say yes that time either, right? Um, I've just, it has been my experience multiple times that I'll ask something the first time and they'll say no, and I'll ask something the second time and they'll say no, and I'll ask the third time and they might say yes. Mm-hmm. And each time I usually try to emphasize to people that like I'm not. I'm not like the TV crew that's going to like barge through their door or sit on their lawn for six weeks, right? You know, um, I'm just a person who's interested in talking to them when they're ready to talk. I don't know. You know, I think in part this was a case of the lawyer, too, um, I think had said like, yeah, her, you can talk to her, you should talk to. I think the same thing happened to Aaron, actually, Mm -hmm. that he was like, yeah, yeah, I think he told me at some point, like, you two were the two I decided. I don't know what broke the seal. I, t- I spoke to him on that first trip to Missouri and that might have helped. But like, um, yeah, because I, I do find like if I go and put myself in front of people, it tends to work better. But it, doorstepping for me is like pain. And then once it did turn and, and they started talking to you, what what happened next? There's a lot of phone conversations because um, a lot of it was done by phone. And then, yeah, and then Gypsy pled out like not long into it. Not long after I finally got the, the, I guess that had been in the works, right? I've never really asked about what exactly was going on. Um, But yeah, Gypsy pled out. And once she pled out, things really loosened up. Because I think, you know, then there wasn't this like scary, scary consequence hanging over speaking to me or to anybody of the press, right? Like her future had been decided. Mm -hmm. And so I feel very lucky that they trusted me with it. And by then I was talking to Aaron a lot. And so I I went down there. I met and I met Christy um, and Rod. And then, um, yeah, I guess whatever I said or did in those phone conversations was enough that when I finally then reached out to Gypsy individually, because it was important to me just because of the way that her life had been organized to like treat her as an individual um, and not go through her representatives necessarily, even even people who have her best interests at heart. I just wanted her to feel like she could decide whether to talk to me. And when I did, she started to call. And what was it like to finally talk to Gypsy? Like after she pled out, what were those conversations like? Well, I was astonished that she called me. I mean, I think most reporters I know of have the same thing of like, why does anybody talk to us? We don't know, right? <laughs> um, and so I remember when I first like got like the, because I missed the first couple calls she made from jail and I saw that they were from Missouri and I realized like, oh, oh, this is her calling because she wasn't leaving messages. She was just hanging up. And um, so then I started watching like my phone like a hawk and I finally got it and I like scrambled to get my my recorder. And it was incredible because like so one of the things that's an element of Gypsy's story is that she had this really high voice. Right. And I think a lot of people assumed that was a put on. And one of the things she said to me in like the first conversation that I'll never forget is like I was being a little bit too official of a reporter at the point, And I was like, but what, if, you know, your voice, Gypsy, like it's so because we were talking about whether she had actively deceives people. And I said, like, you know, what do you say to people who, who say that your voice is like a put on? And she said, it's it's my voice. Like, I can't help it. And I remember that being like one moment where I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm such an asshole. Journalism is asshole. Right? Like, um, <laughs> because she meant it so sincerely. Like, I think that particular thing was very much like, yeah, I don't know what she was supposed to do about that. Right. Like, I don't know. Like, and, and I don't know that her voice was evidence of anything, because the truth is, once I started to talk to her, I don't know, like it, it didn't. It, she's very smart. 
like maybe she doesn't have much of an education, although it's better now, but like, you know, she did not have much of an education, but she was a very lucid interview subject and mm-hmm. somebody who like grasped the meaning of questions immediately and didn't like beat around the bush. Like she was you know, just a very good interview subject. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you're coming off this Gawker thing, <laughs> which was not a happy experience for you. Yeah. You're trying to do more ambitious reporting projects. Yeah. You have to know. I mean, I know that you felt like this was a big story. Yeah. But it was also so sensational and kind of like crazy, you know? And I know. once you started really talking to her, like, how do you treat that story with care when you know how crazy it is? It's a lot easier after you've actually been in front of people and realized they're human beings. Like, because people do always say to me, like, oh, that story is so fucking insane. And I've actually gotten quite defensive about it. I guess I knew that it was that way when I picked it up. I do know that I spoke to the editor about it at the time, Marissa Carroll at BuzzFeed. And I remember we talked a little bit about, like, how extreme it sounded and then how also, like, something about the initial wire report, which was the thing that we picked it up off of, um, there was something missing in it, right? Like it was, it just, there was some like emotional element that wasn't there. And then like I started to uncover more stuff and it was, yeah. I mean, I think actually it's not very hard once you get in front of people to see them as human beings and to tamp it down. Like I remember thinking very early on, like this story has so much like sensation in it that I my language needs to be like John McPhee. This needs to be like John McPhee telling the story, <laughs> right? Um, because otherwise, it's just like it's a lot for people to handle, and and you know that was actually something that I still think like kind of hurts Gypsy a little bit. I, and I don't mean it hurts her feelings. I mean it hurts the way that people receive the story if everybody is just like OMG all the time about it, right? because she is a person, right? Um, And much as, like, what happened to her is very extreme, the most interesting version of the story is, like, how did we get here, right? Like, how did we get to this place, right? Like, where this person who it turned out had been in this horrible situation with her mom since she was three months old, like, how do you get here, and that's the story that I tried to tell and that I guess I'm still trying to tell in other contexts and other projects that I'm working on now because I think actually usually most of the time once you get to the heart of the tabloid story, people have reasons for doing what they do, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'm not saying the reasons are good, but I am saying they're accessible to us and you just have to do a lot of digging to get to them. Once it came out and it went viral and millions of people reading this story what was that like for you and what do you think it was like for her well I know that immediately she started to get like positive mail and actually people put money in her in her account in her commissary in her commissary um and I think that was really nice for her because I think prior to that not all the press was horrible but it was very hard for people to understand the whole context because of the way the stories had been presented. And, and I don't mean to, like, denigrate any journalists who were also working on it. I think it's difficult in the context of, like, a quick hit on the evening news to convey this particular story, right? Like, it was just hard. And, yeah, so I think that was good for her. Like, it, it made her feel, I think, a little bit like there was hope at the end of the tunnel. Um, but I remember she called me after after she finally read it, which was some time after the sort of, like, explosive viral strength of it, she called me and just said, like, I like that you had, like, a hopeful note at the end. Because <laughs> I think, yeah, was, she said, I didn't understand all the words in it, um, but I like that, yeah, that you found some hope at the end of it. What was it like for you? What's it been like for you, having this one story go, go so wild? I'm really worried about being too defined by it. Like, I was in the documentary and it was actually like a difficult experience for me um but yeah i like aaron and she's great it was again the exposure thing that i'm talking about which really has nothing to do with anything that was in the documentary but um but yeah i didn't enjoy being on tv i don't think that's like my gig (laughs) um even um, though now you've um totally figured out how to deal with uh (laughs) criticism and yeah yeah or something like that and just try and be zen about it yeah i know um (laughs) yeah it it still has not really applied very well to the situation 
because I also like I don't really want to be like the spokesperson for these people and this family either. Um, and mostly I was like the nice thing about the popularity of the documentary is it took that pressure off of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really want to be defined by the one story. Of course, it's a fascinating and interesting story. And in many ways, Gypsy changed my life. And I'm always going to like kind of owe her something for that. I really, though, I, I haven't been totally comfortable with the way that it's shaped up as like this thing where everybody, this is insane. Or like people, a lot of people ask me all the time, is Gypsy a psychopath? And like, I, I don't think she's a psychopath. Um, I just think like sometimes the story has been packaged that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for me, it's been both great in the sense that all of a sudden people wanted to like commission my reported work. And then also just like, yeah, like worrying that you'll be defined by it because Gypsy is like a once in a lifetime story. Right. Um, I'm not sure there's too many other stories out there like this. And yeah, and I, I have other interests and other things that I want to write and do. And I guess like now I have the books. That's nice. It's just interesting. Like they're just all these different strains of your work. They're like <laughs> these different Michelles, you know? I know. It's I like, know. like blogging. I know. Michelle and like maybe one of the most read feature articles ever, (laughs) Michelle, (laughs) and then like this deeply researched kind of niche book. But there's something in the way that the book is getting written about and talked about where it's like it feels like it's kind of like you. Yeah. People are kind of juiced about you. Yeah, it does feel like the book um, is starting to define me a little bit. Um, and I'm getting to come out from behind certain things. Although that's like kind of the challenge for the next project because it is definitely still true that in Sharp I'm sort of like hiding behind. There's a story about this poet named Jared Manley Hopkins that I think about all the time where he was so shy that when he lectured at university he would put books up in front of him and he would lecture from behind them. And while I don't do that physically, like I think I'm still in Sharp a little bit lecturing from behind the books uh, and it's probably time to come out. You going to come out? <laughs> yeah, What's the next thing? What do you do now? What can I say on the record? I can say that I'm working on a couple of really long and really big stories that are, they bear spiritual resemblances to Gypsy, but are not like, they're different kinds of stories that are about people who are in sort of extreme situations, right? Um, and trying to figure out what the like human path to that is and I think they're they're really good Um, and I have a novel too I should have I don't even know why I didn't front load that but I have a novel like that I'm sort of finishing it's been like kind of an incontinent process but yeah wow Mazatov thank you it's funny to think about um, corporate law Michelle (laughs) yeah I mean I have no idea what she would make of any of this I I don't I say I always wanted to be a writer, and and that's true. Um, I really did get to a point when I was in the law firm of thinking it's just not going to happen, right? Like, I'm just going to be something else, right? Um, And when I was initially laid off, I tried to get another job as a lawyer, right? Like, um, even though I knew that it was, like, sort of closing down time for me. But, I like, I wasn't really sure what else I could do. And also I had this idea that, like, writing was for fancy people, and I was not a fancy person. And I didn't know how to just, like, get over that, get over myself. (laughs) Do you feel like a fancy person now? Sometimes. I'm still, like, I feel like I'm still on the edges of uh, certain kinds of success I would have liked to have, right? Like, but I think, I guess, like, the thing is that feeling doesn't seem to go away for anybody. (laughs) There's always something else. So I, I feel like, yeah, like, my current life on paper is pretty nice. Right. Like, um, you know, I get to work on lots of interesting stories and I don't I don't spend a lot of time doing things I don't want to do anymore, um, which is pretty much the definition of a good life, I think. But yeah, I don't know. It still feels like there's a couple of things I'd like to do that I'm not quite there yet. I don't know. Dissatisfaction is just like kind of the writer's lot in life. Uh, I don't know how to I don't know how to do anything but end it there. Michelle, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer and our intern is Angela Velez. Thanks to them. Thanks to our dear friends at MailChimp. Their support makes this show possible. And uh, you should go support Michelle Dean. Buy that book, Sharp. We'll see you next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.